From the AMF studios, you're listening to the Health and Safety Law Report. My name is Doug Jenks. And I am Abby White. Today, we're going to be talking about issues that are relevant to employers as they navigate the health and safety regulatory environment. So that would include things like OSHA, workers' compensation, uh, might also occasionally include ADA, FMLA, Department of Transportation. We're not going to be discussing those issues today, the ADA, FMLA, and and DOT, um, but generally this podcast will focus on health and safety issues as they concern employers uh, trying to navigate this regulatory environment. Just so everybody understands, we are lawyers, but we're not your lawyer, at least not while broadcasting on the podcast. This is just information. We're not trying to give you legal advice. We are not giving you legal advice. We aren't addressing any specific case or any specific issue. We are simply here to educate uh, the public, business owners, safety and health professionals, maybe even other lawyers who might be listening to this uh, about current issues in safety and health law. Right. So when in doubt, if you need a lawyer, if you're looking for legal advice, then you need to um, seek out your own legal counsel and and talk to your your own attorney. All right. So let's begin by uh, talking a little bit about the kind of work that we do um, as attorneys. We primarily represent employers in health and safety. So our practice is in the area of OSHA defense, which includes actually a lot of different things um, from consulting with employers about compliance issues uh, to walking them through the inspection process, uh, defending against citations, litigating citations, um, you name it. If it's related to OSHA, uh, we, we do it. Uh, and then we also um, represent employers not just um, that are under federal OSHA jurisdiction, but also um, employers who are under state plan OSHA jurisdiction. And then uh, here in Ohio, we represent Ohio employers uh, in the defense of workers' compensation claims and any and all matters related to workers' compensation. I've been doing this for 13 years. Doug, you've been doing this for a while longer. 15. Anything you want to add? Nope, it's just been 15 years. <laughs> 15 years of, of bliss. Pure joy. Pure joy. We spend um, a good amount of time defending employers here in Ohio in workers' compensation claims as well, as well our OSHA practice is nationwide, uh, which is federal and state OSHA. The workers' comp practice is only germane here to Ohio. This being our first episode, uh, we thought it was most appropriate to talk about the 900-pound gorilla in the health and safety room, and and that is the big issue that is facing all employers, um, and it's the same issue that's facing all uh, human inhabitants of planet Earth, and that, of course, is is COVID-19. So it begs the question, what is OSHA doing with regard to uh, employers and COVID-19? So uh, today, uh, we're going to talk just briefly broad overview about that topic and then over the next couple of episodes we will dive in a little bit more deeply into um, into uh, what particular things OSHA is doing with uh, with regard to COVID. And I think the the first question is uh, and I'll just pose this question to you Abby. So what is the the standard? I mean OSHA operates under standard. 
Um, and then within each of those, um, there are specific rules that employers in those particular industries need, need to follow. So then that just begs the question, here we've got this new health and safety matter that has come up rather abruptly uh, in, uh, in 2020. Uh, what standard is OSHA relying on to um, control the behavior of employers? So let's back up a little bit because I did some internet sleuthing on what OSHA has been up to uh, in terms of enforcement related to covid do you want to hear some some stats? Yeah, hit me. Okay. So as of December 3rd, so from the start of all this through December 3rd, do you want to take a guess at how much OSHA has issued in terms of penalties to employers? So what you're saying is that OSHA is penalizing employers for COVID-related matters. Correct. And you're asking me how much money? How much money total, all how- employers. Okay. Through December 3rd. All right. Can you uh, <laughs> give me a hint? Is it over? Is it over a million dollars? It's over a million. All right. It's over two million. It's over two million. All right. So I'll say it's uh, probably well, I don't know, two and a half, three million dollars. You're close. Okay. Three point five million and change. Wow. Which I, that sounds like a lot to me. So that's the total amount of of citation of, of penalties, penalties in the citations. Yes. Has that been paid, or are those being contested, do you think? Uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, that's based on 263 inspections, which would not include inspections that are still ongoing, but inspections that have closed and penalties have citations and penalties have been issued. But the alarming thing to me uh, is that number is up a million dollars in one month, so from a little over a month, from October 29th through the beginning of December uh, that that penalty's amount has grown by over a million dollars. So that suggests they're being very aggressive or increasingly aggressive. Yeah, I mean, my takeaway from this is that whether you are someone who is super worried about COVID, being super careful, maybe to an extreme, or someone who thinks this is all just some big conspiracy, uh, the bottom line is OSHA is taking it seriously, and they are going to come out and do an inspection if you don't uh, take steps to protect your employees from this this novel virus. Okay, but so that begs the question, which is what I was right. thinking about before. If they've issued uh, $3.5 million in total fines or penalties, and they've done, what would you say, 263 263 inspections. Inspections. Yeah. So what, what standard, I mean, what are they refer, what are they citing you sure. under? Right. Because so, there's no, or there's no COVID standard. You're right. All right. Right. So the general duty clause, uh, the respiratory protection standards. So having a written respiratory protection program. Okay. Uh, and also injury uh, and illness reporting and recording under 1904. All right, so the general duty clause, respiratory protection, which I guess that makes sense because everybody's wearing masks now. Well, yeah, so I imagine this is coming into play where uh, employers are requiring a lot of these citations have been against the healthcare industry. And I imagine employers are requiring uh, healthcare workers to wear N95s, which are respirators. And when you require your employees to wear an N95 respirator, you've got to have a respiratory protection program in place and fit testing and the whole nine. 
and I'm guessing a lot of employers probably just slapped their employees in these respirators and didn't think a thing about it because everybody was desperate to get their hands on an N95 respirator. So, all right, if I let's say I uh, let's say I operate a uh, convenience store, right, like a mini mart, mm-hmm. and I run out to the local home center and I buy some 3M N95 masks, and I'm looking at this box. And they just look like cloth masks. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're telling me that that is considered to be a respirator by OSHA? Not the cloth mask, but the re- the N. If it's a true N95, well, it looks like a mask to me. If it's true, if it's a true N95, yeah, that's a respirator. That's a respirator. And yep. unless the employee is wearing it voluntarily, you've got to have a respiratory protection program. All right, so. Using the N95 masks, putting your, giving them to your employees. Yes. I mean, you really you're doing them a favor. You're saying, "Hey guys, here's the, here here are these N95 masks slash respirators." You're saying that that activity triggers the employer's um, requirement to follow the respiratory protection standard under OSHA. Correct. It's super esoteric. Not yes. esoteric, but it's it's not obvious, right? I mean, right. if I'm an employer, I want to I want to know I want to go to uh, the OSHA standards, or I want to go to the OSHA website, and I want to just I want a list of the rules. What is it I have to do um, to keep my employees safe and uh, to avoid being hit with three and a half million dollars in in penalties? So then that begs the other question: What what do you tell employers who say, who ask? They're like, well, what the heck? You know, where do we begin? This is crazy. I never, ever would have imagined that, you know, this, this what looks like a mask is going to trigger me to follow the respiratory protection standards. So where do you start? How, what's a good way for employers to get oriented with how they should be behaving uh, vis-a-vis OSHA? So I think the best place to start is with that uh, handy little booklet that OSHA published back in the spring that you and I both look at all the time um, when we get OSHA compliance questions on COVID. So that's the, you're talking about the guidance on, the guidance on preparing workplaces for COVID-19. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that and that's the the guide that was published um, last spring, and it's a it's PDF. I don't. Did you print it out? I didn't print it out. Me no. either. But it's like it's like thirty pages. It's not, not very not very big. But what I like about that is that it breaks down in in it's almost like a cookbook. You know, if you follow follow these steps for this this recipe, then at the end of it, you should be able to take care of your employees and avoid citation, right? You, right. You, yeah, absolutely. I mean, do you find you've gone through this? Do you think that mm-hmm. it's uh, effective and it's helpful? And is that the kind of thing that you would, you I guess you do recommend that your clients follow that? Yeah, I think it's helpful. I think that the first thing though that people struggle with the most is deciding what level of risk they are in um, because that's sort of the first step with that book is depending on your risk level you have to take certain steps to protect your employees Um, and in some cases you know employers have different departments different groups of people doing different things and it, it can be tricky at times to figure out what risk level you are but that really is the first step and then everything flows from there okay so let's talk about that risk assessment with regard to the preparedness response plan 
the, the very first thing that this guide tells employers to do is to um, prepare an infectious disease preparedness response plan. So if, if an employer calls me and they say, what the heck, where do I begin, what do I do? The first thing I'm going to say to them is, is I'm going to ask, do you have an infectious disease preparedness response plan? And um, most of the time, the answer is, "What are you? What are you talking about?" It sounds intimidating. It does sound. It does <laughs> sound intimidating. But in order for you to have a plan as an employer to take care of your employees with regard to COVID, then that begs the the next issue. The second question is, "Well, what is my level of risk?" Right. So why don't you talk to us about about that? I mean, what what is let's talk about you know different industries, different kinds of employers, and the different kinds of risk that they might face. Sure. And, and how they would, and then we'll talk about how you would address that in your plan. Yeah. So there's really four levels of risk, ranging from low, then medium, then high, then very high. With very high being your healthcare workers, nursing home workers, um, morgue workers. Anybody who's exposed to droplets. Droplets. Nice. <laughs> we have a whole new vocabulary since yes. COVID began. Bodily fluids. Bodily fluids, right. I mean, anybody on the front lines of this stuff is going to be in the very high-risk group. Um, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have um, employers where, you know, they're like us. And we're fortunate and everyone in our office can stay six feet apart all the time. And uh, we don't have to have any contact with each other to do our jobs. Uh, medium risk would be people who have to be within six feet of one another. Uh, high risk would be indoors and within six feet of one another. Um, How about my, uh, my mini mart example? Let's say I, I run this, this little mini mart and I've got two employees and um, let's, say I've got, let's say I've got one guy on the counter and I got somebody in the back in the back room, right? Who does does the books and is ordering groceries and things like that? Would that be that would be like medium risk, don't you think? Yeah, I guess. or maybe so even low risk. Huh? No, I, I. I mean, if you're not within six feet, I, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I'd say medium risk. If you're inside, you potentially have customers, people that are you don't know where they've been, they're coming in and out and you know, they're gonna pay for whatever it is they're buying from the mini mart. I'm assuming this is a mini mart out in the sticks that doesn't have No, this is a downtown highly traveled high, highly trafficked mini mart. Okay. Well, I have a very successful high traffic mini mart. Then I, I would say maybe a high risk. Because what? People coming because in Because of out. the people coming in and out. All right. So then um, let's say I I have a, I assess my risk as um, high, what do you do, right? So what's an employer to do with that? Um, how do you, what do you put into your response preparedness plan? I guess that's when we get into things like um, the engineering and the administrative controls, Yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so depending on your level of risk, if it's high, then those controls are going to be more strict in terms of ensuring that you're, you are socially distancing uh, in terms of your your coworkers and trying to do so with regard to customers or the public that come in, right? Um, so let's talk a little bit about that, and uh, well, let's talk about yeah the administrative and the the engineering controls. What's the difference? Do you want me to answer that, or do you want to answer that? You can. I've done a lot of talking. You have. I have. <laughs> All right. So administrative controls um, are controls that the employer can implement 
that, uh, for lack of a better word, control the, the, um, the movement of people um, on the job site or at your place of business. So, for example, what you might do is stagger the start time um, for your employees so that you don't have too many people in a small space at, at one time. If you are running more than one shift, you might try to, let's say you're a manufacturing facility and you've got two shifts and you've got one shift that's got a lot more people in it than the other shift, uh, you would try to, through your administrative controls, to even that out so that you have, uh, so neither of those shifts has a lot of people and that you would be able to socially distance. In terms of, so that's just one example of an administrative control. In terms of uh, engineering controls, let's stick with that manufacturer as an example. You would do things to um, engineer your way out of a, an, an environment that is going to be conducive to spreading this disease. So that would be like putting up barriers uh, between your employees. So let's say you have, imagine an, a, an assembly line, um, and you've got employees who are right next to each other. Under your engineering control plan, you would put barriers up between them, like whether it's plastic barriers or some sort of wall, if possible, between them so that they're not breathing on each other. Um, similarly, you might make changes to your HVAC system to make sure that you are doing a very good job of exhausting the air inside your facility to the outside, and you're always bringing um, fresh outside air, hopefully it's clean, um, in, inside. So that's an example of an engineering control that you might uh, try to implement. Does or that, you could open your windows. You could open your windows. <laughs> Absolutely. The very high-tech thing that you it, can do is if you have windows that open, just open them. We do not have windows that open. We right. Well, we jump we, out of them if we did. That's correct. <laughs> we work in a hermetically sealed glass and faux concrete office tower, right? We do. Yes. In which case, all of those other things would be helpful. But your point is actually is a, is a good one, that you don't have to um, bring in some HVAC company to redo your entire HVAC system. It could be as simple as opening up uh, doors, uh, whether it's a garage door. A lot of manufacturing facilities have very large garage doors. Opening that up uh, occasionally to vent the air. Um, right? Right, yeah. It's getting a little harder here in the Midwest now that it's December, but um, crack them open a little bit, get the air moving. Right. I mean, that, that's yep. an issue that we, we have seen before because employers do need to vent the air, and, yes. and it's difficult um, when it's freezing outside. All right, so um, just getting back to where we were, and we're probably going to be wrapping up um, pretty soon here, and then we'll be addressing some more issues in greater uh, detail in the next um, couple of episodes. But what we've learned today is that there is no one particular standard that OSHA is citing employers under, um, and that there's a whole bunch of different standards, including the uh, reporting standard, which is a whole another level of hell, I guess. It is. It That's be. an episode in and of itself, I think, probably. That would be a really yes. fun episode. It would. Yeah. Um, so, but the best thing for an employer to do is to simply go to the OSHA website and and look at the uh, the infectious disease, or I'm sorry, the uh, guidance on preparing workplaces for COVID-19. Um, and then under that, they're going to learn about their response, uh, preparedness and response plan, which is going to include things like 
assessing your risk. Right. And determining what controls you need to put in place. Yeah. Sound good? Yeah. Anything else? I think that covers it. I mean, what else would, would we tell? If somebody just called us right now and they said, mm-hmm. heck, what do I do? I'm, I'm lost. I mean, that's pretty much the advice we would give them, right? Right. Yep. All right, so that wraps it up. I think that's a good place to stop. Uh, I would remind everybody that, um, again, we are lawyers, but we're not your lawyers. Um, And if you have specific legal questions regarding liabilities, then you need to make sure that you're in contact with your attorney and also how about a safety professional? That'd be great. Because we don't do that either. We don't. We know a lot of them, though. We do. Right. And maybe in the future we're going to maybe bring one in for an interview. That'd be great. That'd be fun. So, all right. Well, that's a wrap. Um, you all have been listening to the Health and Safety Law Report. My name is Doug Jenks. My name is Abby White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. We just